from the 17th chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. You know, I've been thinking this past week about a bunch of different things, uh, but one thing which keeps popping into my mind with the text for today is a question that everybody asks in our culture, including you, and it's this. How can I be happy? How can I be happy? I mean, if you think about it, our entire culture is seeped through, not, not only with this question, but its proposed or supposed answer. I mean, TV is full of advertising of the latest and greatest thing to promise us happiness. We have careers and families and marriages and hobbies and all sorts of good things that we do for one reason, and it's to strive to be happy. And here's the funny thing. It never seems to stick, does it? It might work for a time, but it always fades away. I'll give you, an, I'll give you just one example, but I mean, fill in the blank for yourself. When I was, when I was five, maybe six, my mom bought me a Tonka truck. Remember those? Tonka trucks, these metal, sharp-edged little trucks you could play with. They were great. It was this metal, yellow Tonka truck. And my, a friend of mine, uh, her, her name actually was Dina Oliveri. She's a bit of a tomboy. She and I would play out in the backyard with our trucks. Her father had a heavy construction company outside of Fairfield, Connecticut, where we lived. And I had that Tonka truck, and man, I was so happy. Lord, take me. My life is complete. I played with that truck. My friend Dina and my friend Mark Trusi, we used to dig ditches and dig up our parents' flowers and put them in said truck. We used to take army men and roll them on the ground and run them over with the Tonka truck. Man, life was good. I was happy for a little while. Uh, you know, and in fact, until I was kind of putting my thoughts down for this sermon this week, I will tell you, friends, I am 53 years old. I have not thought about that Tonka truck in 47 years. I have no idea where it is, and nor do I actually really even care. You know why? It didn't really make me happy. I mean, it did for a little while, right? It was fun when I had it, but it didn't have any staying power. It didn't have any lasting effect. It didn't change me. You know, it's interesting. There was a, 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 a vendor, it was Verizon or AT&T or someone, that would always advertise their phones, right? Their, their new uh, cell phones that would come out. And, that, and there, it, was a, it was a great tagline. It was brilliant. And they said, we're at Verizon. We have the, 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 uh, the next big thing. You ever heard that? Verizon, whatever. But that's the idea. We're always, we're always striving for the next big thing. So here's the question. What does it actually mean to be happy? What does that actually even mean? It's a really, really, really big question. And, and it's an important one. I'll tell you one reason. Because the pursuit of this happiness is at the very center of Western culture. In fact, our nation was formed. We fought a war over this. The Declaration of Independence from England was fought in the name of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So what exactly is it we're after? You know, my dad used to say, if you don't know what you want, you're never going to get it. Fair enough. If you don't know what happiness is, well, then how will you know when you've actually found it? So we're going to do a deep dive today in Scripture in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 10. I'll invite you to open up your book if you want to follow along. Um, 
Two things that Jeremiah tells us. He tells us that what happiness is not, a negative argument, what happiness is not, and then secondly, what happiness is. What happiness is not, and then what happiness is. So first point out of Jeremiah 17, what happiness is not. Well, the book of Jeremiah we read a description. It's a, it's a kind of a Hebrew thing they do a lot. Jesus does this in the Beatitudes. You know, blessed art thou. There's the seven blesseds and then the seven woes, right? So there's the things you don't do and the things you should do, right? And so that's a common teaching idea. Well, now and then, right? You lay out the pros and the cons, you might say. So Jeremiah lays out a description of what happiness is not. Here we go, verse 5. Jeremiah, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. And mean, making flesh your strength means trusting in your own capacity, your own being, or the being of people around you. But Jeremiah says that that man, and that woman too, it's not just men, but that person is cursed. Cursed is the person who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Trust and strength that are reliant upon us. Jeremiah says that that person is cursed. Now, I would say we can all agree that being cursed is bad, right? Is that fair? Anybody here want to be cursed? I don't. Uh, and if you're like most people, and like me, frankly, when I was reading this earlier in the week, when I read cursed, I think of something like some supernatural being, God or some voodoo being put on me to correct my behavior. Someone puts a spell on you or God, you know, hits you with a lightning bolt to knock you back. That's what I think of when I think of cursed. An active punishment by someone or something to punish, to, to bring me to a state of repentance. I'll give you an example. Back when I was five or six and I was not playing with my Tonka truck or my army men, I used to also watch the Brady Bunch. Remember that? And uh, the Brady Bunch, there was a, one of the episodes... Um, where Greg Brady, who's the oldest one, he was out surfing in, I think it was Hawaii, and they came, he came across this little idol. Remember that? It's like a little wooden statue of something or other. And everyone's like, oh, Greg, put it back. You can't touch that thing. It's got voodoo on it, you know? He's like, ah, forget it. And then all this bad stuff began to happen to Greg Brady, right? Remember this? All sorts of bad stuff happened, didn't he? And they said, man, you're cursed. And that's what we hear that's what I hear, and that's probably what you hear. When you hear, cursed is the man who trusts in flesh. Like God is some sort of petulant and impatient arbiter. But not so fast. And here's why. Does God allow us to make mistakes? Yes or no? He does. That's, I make them all day long. It's one thing I'm really good at, right? God allows me to make mistakes. God allows you to make mistakes. But let me ask you, let me ask you a question. A question. Uh, a, uh, an idea. What if you were to, I don't know, watch the game tonight, Super Bowl, and you drop two martinis, and you get in the car, and you drive home, and you get arrested? Is that God cursing you, or have you borne the consequences of your own decision? The point I'm trying to make here, this is a really important one, is that what Jeremiah is telling us is not that God is out to get you, but what he's actually doing is word, it's a word, listen, a word of warning. Jeremiah's word is supremely pastoral. 
That if we trust in man and put our confidence in the flesh, that we will be cursed, unhappy, miserable, but it's our own fault. And so Jeremiah is pointing out to you, listen, you got to, there's only two ways to live, right? Trusting in God or trusting in something else. We all trust something. And Jeremiah is saying, look, if you want to really cause your own misery, here's how you do it. Trust in man and trust in yourself. So don't hear this idea of being cursed as a punishment. Think of it as a, a warning. It changes the whole take of the text here. I'll show you this. If you trust in the things of this world, God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah, they will fail you. Look at what he says. So what does this curse look like? Verse 6, Jeremiah tells us that a person who trusts in himself and in flesh and the things of this world, that person, he or she, I guess, is like a shrub in the desert that does not see any good come. He shall dwell in a parched place in the wilderness, an uninhabited salt land. Now I will tell you, friends, I don't know anything about shrubs. I mean, I know what they are. I could care less about plants, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a plant guy, but I do know one thing. If you plant a shrub in the desert and you don't water it, like we do here in Florida, right, irrigation and all that, if you put a plant in the, in the, in the ground in the desert and you don't water it, it will, it will die. It cannot, here's the point of the, of the metaphor, right? It cannot sustain itself on its own. One, cam- one commentator wrote, I didn't write the guy's name down, sorry, but one commentator wrote, the truth about this desert that this cursed person lives in, this godless world is summed up with, in masterly brevity in three features of thirst, this is awesome, loneliness, and sterility. The world cannot give you lasting happiness, Jeremiah is saying, God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah, Happiness is not found in things of trusting this world. Well, then what is it? That's the big question. Okay, I get that. We've all been there and done that. We've all trusted in something to make us happy, and it's let us down. We've all failed. We've all been there, done that, got the trophy, right? Well, then what exactly is this happiness? And Jeremiah tells us, blessed is the man, listen to this, who trusts in the Lord, not in flesh, and not in himself, but in the Lord. Whose trust is in the Lord. And there's a wonderful metaphor here. Check it out in verses uh, 7 and 8. He says, this man who trusts in the Lord, unlike the shrub in the desert who dries up and blows away because he can't sustain himself when calamity comes, the man who was, who was trusting the Lord is like a tree. Stay with me. It's this, metaphor, this tree metaphor. Planted by water that sends out its roots into the stream and, and that... It, and does not fear when heat comes, and is not anxious in the year of drought. Did you hear that? Blessed is the man who, who, who is like a tree by a pond, by a river, who sends its roots underneath and is not anxious and not fearful when things happen to it. Why not? Because it can draw from the living water. A person who trusts in God and makes God his strength you, if you trust in God and make God your strength, you draw on that water. You draw from the water below because your roots go deep. You know, in my backyard, I have a, uh, a pond. It's actually not a pond, frankly. It's a, it's a retention basin, right? Because in Florida, when you're going to build a house on a swamp, 
what you have to do is dig a great big hole so all the water runs into it, and then you take all that dirt and you put it along the sides so you can build houses on it. So I like to think of it as my pond, but frankly, it's just a retention basin. And I live on that pond, and I love that pond. I sit out there on the back porch on, a, on occasion, and I look out my back, my pool and my pond and, and smoke a cigar or whatever I do out there, hang out with friends of mine. And across the pond from my porch is this great big huge live oak. You ever seen a live oak? They're gig- this thing is massive. It must be, I have no idea how old it is, but I'm guessing it's at least older than me. Probably maybe 150, 200 years old. This oak is old, it's massive, it's gangly, it's oaky. It's kind of ugly in a way. They kind of are ugly trees. They're all misshaped and stuff. But you look at this thing and you just think, my goodness, this thing has been through hurricanes and swamps and construction projects built around it. This thing has been there for longer than anybody in this room, probably even longer than your grandparents in this room. And we see that tree, and when I sit up there and just kind of marvel at this thing, I love looking at it. It symbolizes to me, like it does to Jeremiah is the point, right? It symbolizes to me strength and courage and sort of unshakableness, right? You're never going to get that oak tree out of that dirt. You're never going to, no hurricane's going to knock that thing down. And the thing which occurred to me as I sit out there and look at this oak is that that oak tree symbolizes strength, and it's only strong for one reason. And you know why? Because it has roots that go underneath. It has roots that go down deep, and there's a lake there, there's a pond there, and it draws that water from those roots up into itself. You can't see those roots. You can't see the water that it's drawing from, but you know it's there. Listen, that oak, that tree, this is the metaphor, draws water and strength from an unseen source. And that's precisely Jeremiah's point. That the man who is blessed, that's the key word, that man draws strength from God. The unseen source, the living water, he says at the end of that passage. And he draws strength of God because he trusts him. Because he trusts God. And Jeremiah says this. He says that, look at it again, verses 7 and 8, that Jeremiah describes what this blessing looks like. This man who trusts God and draws this water, he does not fear, he is not anxious, and he prospers. And notice something about all those words. He's not anxious, he's not fearful, and he prospers. And the reason he is that way is because he trusts God. That's an interesting, that's a really important point. A lot of people talk about, I believe in God, right? I believe in God exists. Can I have, can I, newsflash here, God doesn't care if you believe he exists. God could care less whether you believe he exists or not. The Bible presumes that you believe in God. Everybody does in some form or another. Everybody believes in a God of something. So the idea that there's no such thing as God is, 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 a, is a fool's errand. Nobody actually believes in that, and no one lives that way. That's a sermon for another day. But I do want to say this. When God, when you hear about Faith in Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Faith is not an intellectual assent to a truth claim. I believe God is real. No. The word faith, in Greek it's the word pastuo, it means trust. You know when Jesus says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. You ever heard that before? And you think, dude, what are you talking about? Well, replace that word faith, it's the Greek word pastuo, with the word trust, and here it goes. If you had trust 
and me the size of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. Changes the whole dynamic. But it's the important point that God, what, what Jeremiah is telling us is the man or woman who trusts in God, who leans on God, who tell, goes to God and says, I got a problem, Lord, that I can't solve, but you can. That person is blessed. Before we jump into that, let me just stop and ask you a question. It's, a, it's an important one. How deep, are your, how deep are your roots? We're staying with the metaphor here, the tree metaphor. How deep are your roots? Well, how do you know? How deep are your roots? Well, what is your source of strength? What is it? And it's probably a bit of both if you're not careful. But what's your go-to? Is it your own? Is it your money? Is it your wealth? Is it your, is it your, your physical capacity to achieve? Well, guess what? That's not going to, that's never, that's not going to survive you. It's not going to, it will fail you. And that's why Jeremiah says, or do you trust God? Do you draw on that spring? And friends, I'm telling you this, not just like Jeremiah, not as a judgment, but as a diagnostic. Because the people who trust in themselves, when the bottom falls out, they've got nothing to lean on. They have no root. They have no strength. We were in our rector's forum this morning, and I was, we're, somebody reminded me of a story I mentioned a couple of years ago. I used to live in New Jersey in a place called Little Silver, a very wealthy area. And uh, this guy who I knew down the street worked on Wall Street, and he had a $12 million house. It's a big house. It's a nice house. Everyone went, ooh, Bob's got a big house. And Bob was just, you know, the, a peacock strutting around and stuff until his next-door neighbor bought a house for $15 million. And it crushed him. And it killed him. You know why? His roots weren't very deep. His roots were in himself. And when the roots were cut, he had nothing. You know, many of us are watching the situation unfold. I am. In, in uh, Ottawa, in Canada. I've been, I've been fascinated by this. I'll tell you. I would tell you. I'll admit. I mean, because here's the question, right? I'd never thought about this before until this past week, for obvious reason. How do Canadians, right, the most polite people on the planet, <laughs> how do they protest, you know? In America, what do we do? We burn down our cities, and we catch things on fire, and we, we throw Molotov cocktails at the police. What do Canadians do? What do they do? They park trucks on bridges. <laughs> and it's, and I, I, mean, I, I mean, it's actually very, I'm, I'm actually fascinated by it. They, they are parking trucks on bridges. They are peaceful protests. Peaceful. And yet, these same people who are parking trucks on bridges are facing all sorts of threats. Lose your job. Years in prison. Somebody who should know better referred to them as white supremacists or the ever-popular insurrectionist, which is the new key buzzword. Some guy said, there's, you know, I was looking around. You, you look, someone mentioned something about swastikas being, you know, I was watching, maybe it's just what I've seen and maybe I'm primed for this because of what I do. But I'm, I'm watching these people, these protesters, there's no swastikas. There were, there were crosses, a few here and there, on trucks or on flags. There was a few, there were, there were no raised fists and Molotov cocktails and cars being rolled over. These are families playing blinko with their kids. And the point I want you to see here is that these people are willing to take a risk at least some of them, the Christians involved, and they're willing to take that risk because they trust God rather than flesh, rather than worry about flesh. So here's the question I want to circle back to. I want to wrap up. 
I asked you in the beginning of my sermon, what does it actually mean? How can we be happy? And I actually think that's the wrong question to ask. Because maybe the pursuit of happiness really isn't the meaning and purpose of life. Guess what? It's not. Maybe the pursuit of happiness really isn't the meaning of life because happiness is situation-dependent. It's fleeting. Maybe instead, the biblical view of life is contentedness. Living a life without worry, without fear. Living a life which is joyful, not in the absence of suffering, but even in the middle of it. Do you notice something here really cool? Jesus, in the, in the Beatitudes, I've preached on that a hundred times. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Now think about that for a second. Is that just, is that just nice refrigerator magnet theology? Oh, thanks, Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn. Wait a minute. That word blessed means happy. It's the word makarios. It means happy and joyful. Let me get this straight. Happy are those who are sad. That doesn't make any sense. And in fact, it doesn't make any sense if you think of happiness the way most people do. If you think of happiness as the absence of suffering, if you think of happiness as just being, having th great things happening all the time, ah, but if Christian happiness is not always things going great, but rather being content, even in the midst of suffering, well now, now you're onto something. Maybe real life is more like that. Maybe the purpose of life is more like what Jesus tells us. Happy are those even when they're sad. Happy are those, makarios, blessed, are those even when you're persecuted falsely. Maybe contentedness is really the thing we should be after and pursuing, and not this happiness, which is fleeting and situational and Tonka trucks. First Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes, to, Paul writes to Timothy, his young priest, who's starting off a church, and you know, he's getting knocked around by some people. And uh, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, listen, godliness, meaning doing the right thing, with content, with contentedness, is great gain. That's Godliness with contentedness is great gain, Timothy, because we took nothing into this world and we can take nothing out. So when we think about this today, if God can be against, if, who can be against us, friends, if God is for us? If God is our source and strength, how can anyone or anything defeat us? If you are rooted in Christ and you draw from that living water, even in the midst of the worst stuff that goes on in this life, all the trash that the world throws at you, people falsely accusing you of being all sorts of things on a bridge in Ottawa, you can take it. You know why? Because your, your trust isn't in the things of this world, but in the God who is unshakable. And you will be like that oak by the side of the pond, which is, which is unmovable, rooted and grounded in Christ, the source of real joy. Because he and he alone, friends, will never fail you. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the prophet Jeremiah, whom you speak through, and who reminds us again that when we trust in ourselves, when we trust that things of this world, they fail us. When we trust in you, we will prosper. When we trust in you, you, Lord, will carry us through, not by our own strength, but by your strength working in, on, and through us. Lord, help us to be rooted and grounded in you, to draw on the living water that sustains us, 
not in the absence of suffering, but actually even in the midst of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.